0: Hello, and thanks for downloading Babbage from The Economist, our weekly look at science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of our daily briefing app, Espresso. Coming up on today's show, a new generation of surgical robots is about to enter the operating theater.
1: If you begin to expand the robotic market to microsurgery or uh, thoracic surgery, then it, it can expand really exponentially.
0: And why do some birds have such colorful bodies?
1: You may also be the color of the efficiency of
2: your digestive system. And if if your digestive system is not real efficient, then you're not going to be as brightly colored as someone who has a very efficient digestive system.
0: But first up, two years ago in Paris, countries around the world agreed to keep global temperatures to well below two degrees compared with those of the pre-industrial era but many models that could lead to that goal assume not just that emissions of greenhouse gases from human activity must drop, and sharply, but also that some carbon dioxide already in the atmosphere must be sucked out, something scientists call negative emissions. Many of these models assume large-scale implementation of the idea in the latter half of the century, but very few of them are actually being pursued now, and fewer still on a commercial basis. One of them is Climeworks, a firm trying to make a business out of sequestering carbon. At last week's Web Summit conference in Lisbon, our environment correspondent Jan Petrovsky spoke to Christoph Gebold, the company's co-founder, to find out a little more about what the company is doing.
3: So, beginning of October, we started operation of a plant in Iceland uh, next to Hedley's Heidi geothermal power plant. At this power plant, we receive low-carbon geothermal heat in order to drive our technology, and we find an excellent place to store the CO2. We are taking CO2 from the air and dissolve the CO2 in water, the water is brought underground and underground the CO2 contained in the water reacts with minerals to eventually turn into stone. So we're literally turning atmospheric CO2 into stone in a very safe way, are able to permanently remove CO2 from the air.
4: So. You said that this is a demonstration project, I, I think that the, the figure that you mentioned is that 100 tons um, have been sequestered in this way so far, uh, which is a, a nice start, but how much CO2 could be stored in the
3: sort of rock, I believe it's basalt, on which Iceland lies? So I've heard of estimations that Iceland would offer storage potential in basalt of, in the range of gigatons.
4: Is that, is that in total or is that per year?
3: Um, No, that's a total capacity. And our next step is to scale up our operations. So currently we are working on scaling our um, CO2 capture business in Iceland to in the range of 3,000 to 5,000 tons annually. And we are just about to find pioneering customers for this atmospheric CO2 reduction. Could you tell us a little bit about how the technology works for capturing? The way the machines capture CO2 from air is based on the following principle. We all learned in maybe primary or high school that bases and acids react with each other. So CO2 in the air is an acid. What we did is we built a base, so to say. So we developed a filter material which has basic properties. And once it sees the acid CO2 in the air, it captures or absorbs this CO2 on its surface. Uh, the material does this until it's saturated with CO2 which happens after a couple of hours and in the second step We need to heat this filter to a hundred degrees Celsius and in such release the CO2 again to the gas phase And that's why you need the low carbon energy in order
4: to actually make this sort of carbon neutral for the current commercial uses or carbon negative for,
3: for the sequestration uses because heating of the chemicals requires energy. So 90% of our energy consumption is met by low carbon heat, which is, again, it's, it's a very important advantage of our technology. It's much better using heat than using, for example, solely electricity, like heat at 100 degrees Celsius is available, is low cost, and that's very important for, for our operation. Thank you, Christoph. Thank you, Jan.
0: Jan now joins me on the line from the COP23 climate conference in in Germany. Jan, you've been writing this week about the need for governments to to plough more funding into this sort of research. I'm interested to know if it's a a hot topic of discussion at the climate talks.
4: The short answer is not really. There have been a few side events where carbon dioxide removal or or negative emissions technologies, um, as these things are called, have made a brief cameo appearance, but it is basically conspicuous by his absence from the um, official agenda, certainly.
0: We've become familiar with terms like uh, carbon capture and storage and and geoengineering and so on. And and they often kind of pop up in the discourse as a potential solution to all of our problems. And and I I guess the question I always have about them is the degree to which they're kind of unhelpful. If they suggest something can be done perhaps later down the line or that will become a magical solution, that that kind of draws attention away from the the more direct problems of of cutting emissions. Uh,
4: That is a perpetual problem. This is the moral hazard argument that um, we're just sort of counting on some sort of miraculous technology to come along. And, and solve all our problems and you know human ingenuity has proven uh rather adept at providing them in the past the, the rub is that we really you know cannot count on these things to just pop out of thin air and the ideas that uh, are being pursued are, are not really being pursued extremely actively and um, a lot of them are at best you know being tested in labs i mean a few a couple of small commercial pilot projects. Mostly, though, they're sort of sequestered away in, in researchers' heads.
0: Out of thin air and sequestered away, I see, I see what you did there. Jan, thanks very much for your time and, and enjoy the talks. Thank you. What do you think about the promise of negative emissions? Will it work? Is it a smart way forward? Or is it all just a lot of hot air? Let us know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, and you can also reach us via emails to radio at And thanks to Rishit Shah, who got in touch with us about the idea of data banks, where web users deposit their data, just like money, into a bank account, with the same controls over who can access them. Turns out the World Economic Forum has been pushing this idea since 2011, and there are plenty of so-called personal data stores vying to make that idea a reality. Next up. Robots have been giving surgeons a mechanical helping hand for years, mostly in urological and gynecological operations. But almost all of the robots were the products of a single company called Intuitive, whose da Vinci robot was first approved for use in surgery in 2000. But now Intuitive patents are starting to expire, and robotics technology has moved on, allowing companies to make smaller and cheaper robots. The market, currently worth about $4 billion a year, could soon be open to competition. Science writer Nicola Nosengo is on the line from Rome Hi there, Nicola. Hi. So first up, who do you think Intuitive's main competitors will be? Who will get the the second, third, and fourth mover advantage?
1: Okay, so at the moment we see quite a few startups entering the market, I mean relatively small companies but this time backed by serious investors uh, that are about to present their products. One uh, recent example is Cambridge Medical Robotics in the UK uh, that this summer presented their Versus robot which is a radically new concept compared to Da Vinci. It's basically made of independent arms. Robotic arms. So uh, an hospital can decide to buy just one, two, three instead of the fixed configuration of the Da Vinci robot that has four arms. And uh, uh, so that of course, makes it uh, more cost, uh, cost effective. And this will be uh, applied basically to the same kind of procedures uh, uh, for which you now use Da Vinci. So it will be a direct competitor for abdominal surgery. A quite different uh, concept is developed by Micromedical Instrument, which is an Italian startup, actually. And they are proposing a robot for uh, uh, microsurgery. That's the kind of, re- of procedure where the surgeon reconstructs nerves, small blood vessels, typically after an incident or the removal of a tumor. And that, as you can imagine, is a kind of procedure where precision down to the millimeter of movement is required and where the surgeon typically has to operate while looking at the tissue through to a microscope. But right now, he has to you know match uh, his movements to, to what he sees on the microscope in a, a natural way. Well this robot will kind of scale down his movements so they can be synchronized with uh, uh, what happens in the microscope. And then another one, and it's a startup that it's attracting really a lot of attention is Auris Robotics. The reason it is so interesting, apart from having raised more than 500 million dollars in uh, funds from investors, is that it was created by uh, Fred Moll, who was one of the original founders of Intuitive, and now he has moved on to another company. And they're introducing uh, a a new robot for lung cancer, which is uh, uh, potentially a huge market because it's a kind of surgery that is now uh, very risky, quite complicated, and for which there are no robotic options. And those are the startups.
0: Right, so it's not just a matter of uh, expanding the market in terms of availability to more facilities, but also expanding the the sort of treatment that can be given. It sounds like exciting stuff.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. The Da Vinci is now, it's a remarkable, I mean, uh, success story, but it's used for a relatively short list of procedures. But if you begin to expand the robotic uh, a market to microsurgery, as I said, or uh, thoracic surgery, then it, it can expand uh, really exponentially. Uh, and then, of course, we have also true giants of the medical industry are going to compete with uh, Intuitive quite soon. One is Medtronic, which is the world's largest uh, producer of medical equipment, and they have, have announced a new robot for 2018. Uh, what we know about it is that it will be uh, a modular design, a bit like Versus, so independent arms, and that it will have, uh, it will give the surgeon some sense of touch, uh, some tactile feedback, which is something that surgeons consider quite important and that the Da Vinci does not have at the moment. And the final one is uh, Verb, Verb Surgical, which is a joint venture between Johnson & Johnson and Google, and Google's life division, so two heavyweights. And as you could expect, uh, being Google involved, they not only aim to produce uh, uh, surgical robots, but to have them uh, connected to the internet and to have them coupled to machine learning systems so that uh, over time, procedure after procedure, they can uh, become better and better at uh, recognizing tissues, at uh, helping surgeons in uh, planning procedures, making complex decisions and so forth and so on. Really applying to... Uh, surgical robots, the kind of technology that other branches of Google are now applying to automated cars.
0: It, it seems like the the reach of artificial intelligence is is just practically infinite. I mean, the, the discussion about robots taking jobs always centers on sort of low-skilled jobs. Now, now we're, we're having a discussion about how they might take really the highest skilled jobs we can think of.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, at the moment, no one in this industry, not even Verbe, with their ambitious plans, is uh, talking about replacing the surgeon. That that's not an option on the table. Because uh, all these robots really require the surgeon to be always in control. What they basically do is to mediate the movements and to you know to elaborate and translate translate the movements of the hands of the surgeons into movements of the robotic arms so that they become more precise, they can Arrive to tissues where the the hands of the surgeons could not arrive safely, but the surgeon is, is always in full control, and even verb when they describe their long term plans uh, for applying artificial intelligence uh, they they may be thinking to automate some of the you know tri- most trivial parts of the procedures, like uh, suturing at the end, but not the rest so it appears that uh, Uh, the surgeon's job is safe, even with robots.
0: Right. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Nicola, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Finally, why do birds have such vibrant, colourful features? Many studies have tried to answer this question, but a new one has caught Matt Kaplan's eye. Richard Kemeny, one of our producers, asked him why birds have such bright colours, like the red-breasted robin or the blue-footed booby.
2: The idea in the biological community for a long time is that birds had to make a terrible trade-off They were eating these foods in the natural world that had compounds that were really good for their immune systems, but are also very useful for creating color in their feathers. So they would consume these compounds, and if they were healthy, the color would be very bright and vibrant, and other birds would notice, which is awfully useful for mating But if they were ill, then these compounds, which are known as carotenoids, would end up getting used by the immune system to try to help the bird to get healthy again. And again, that leads to drab coloration and potential mates notice and say, well, gosh, that bird doesn't have as vibrant blue feet as that one. So I'm going to mate with the, the vibrant one. Thank you very much, because I can tell that they're healthier. It was literally the color of health. And no one's debating that. But there's been an argument for a long time that there's more to it than just immune function. Is it possible, for example, for a bird to have an extremely efficient immune system that is better able to grab all of those little compounds that they're feeding on in the natural world and that that might yield better coloration? For example, if you eat, let's say, a berry that yields a certain number of these color compounds, you don't have to be ill to not get a lot of color. If your digestive system doesn't do a good job of collecting that color, then that's going to make you look drab as well. So these researchers hypothesized that... that. You may also be the color of the efficiency of your digestive system. And if, you're, if, if your digestive system is not real efficient, then you're not going to be as brightly colored as someone who has a very efficient digestive system. I can hazard some guesses, but why don't you tell us how exactly they uh, checked these birds' uh, digestive systems compared to their colors? They went out into the metropolitan area of Phoenix, Arizona. They collected finches, and this species of finch that they were looking at have the males will have a bright red breast if they're getting lots and lots of, of carotenoids in their diet and, um, and are not unhealthy. And so they collected these male finches, they put them into captivity for a short while, and they collected uh, feces from them and uh, also an- analyzed this feces to determine whether or not the males had high parasite loads or had diseases and some such all of the males that they looked at were in reasonably good health, but they were able to run a test on the feces that measured the efficiency with which the finches were able to grab fats out of their diet and 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 digest them. And that's important because a lot of these colors that we see in, in bird feathers are bound to fats in the diet. So if you're a bird and you're really efficient at getting fats out of your food— then you're going to be able to get more of these carotenoids and yield a brighter breast color than your compatriot who may not have the same ability to rip away those compounds from their food. And so they they hypothesized that if they found lots and lots of fat in the feces of these male finches, then those males would not be very brightly colored. And in contrast, they hypothesized that if they found very little fat left over in the feces of these males, that they would see uh, very bright colors, because it would suggest that the males were getting a lot of, of the carotenoids from their digestive systems. And and this was absolutely the case. So brighter birds mean that they're more efficient eaters. So what can we hope to take from this in a, in a practical sense? The uh, researchers hope to use this just to spot healthy or unhealthy birds or... Can it teach us something more fundamental about uh, bird biology and and mate choices? Well, it certainly says something very interesting about the mating behavior and the immunology of birds. And it, it shows us that not only are the birds signaling their health by color, they're also signaling their ability to digest food with their color. So all all things being equal, all these finches were pretty healthy and they all were able to uh, create a lot of color when they had efficient digestive systems. But if they didn't have as much of an effective digestive system, their color lagged. And it's interesting that we see that color is showing you the efficiency of digestive system because if you're a female finch, and you are totally dependent upon the male feeding you while you're nesting your young, which is the case with these finches, then you don't just care that the male is healthy. You care that the male's going to be able to have a fair bit of food to spare while you're nesting. And if he's got a really efficient digestive system, then that's important for you to know because it means, oh yeah, okay, fine, he's going to be able to get by on a fairly small amount of food, and then share a lot with me. Whereas if he doesn't have an efficient digestive system, that means any female that may mate with him could be stuffed in the long run. Even if he's healthy, he may need to gobble up more food and not have as much to share with her. So it tells us that this whole interaction between the mates when they're getting ready to nest is a lot more complicated than we realized.
0: So red robins are not just beautiful in time for our Christmas cards, it turns out. Thanks very much to Richard and Matt there. That's it for Babbage this week. If you could give us a review on your podcasting app, we'd appreciate it. It'll give us a boost and help spread the word about Babbage. I'm Jason Palmer. Thanks very much for listening. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation.